less conversation, a little more Elvis, please. All this aggravation is satisfaction in me. Come on, baby, let's start talking. Welcome to another episode of uh, A Little Less Conversation. A lot more Elvis. Mark Andrew, hello, how are you? Hi, Kevin. How are you, buddy? I'm good. Now, you've been a busy, you are a busy, busy man. Yeah, I hope everyone had a good break over Chrissy. And um, I went overseas just with a family holiday and it was fantastic. It's just something you got to do. I think uh, it was on the bucket list and, um, you know, my kids are adults now and it's something that we haven't done for a long, long time. So it was great. You were, you stretched the wardrobe too because you went from the snow to, the, uh, to, to Hawaii, Hawaii. So you gave yeah. everything a bit of a nudge. And um, while I was in Hawaii, I took my son to quite a few Elvis sites. So, you know, and it's something that's on my bucket list to do, a tour in Hawaii that I host and um, take people over there and we do all the sites that, um, you know, where Elvis was or had a part of, you know. So I think that's uh, something that'll be really interesting and uh, I don't think anyone's doing it, so... Now, you have got some tours that you've got planned, which uh, you want to talk about now or you want to wait until after we hear from our guests from this week? Um, oh, yeah, I'm just constantly um, doing shows around Melbourne, Sydney, and I've got one coming up in Adelaide. And um, I think the best thing for that is just sort of follow, you know, Mark Andrew on Facebook and um, or the Mark Andrew Fan Club. And then, uh, yeah, Sharon always posts all my shows up there, so... Find out where you are and where you can catch your life. Very good. Yeah. Now, tell me yeah. about this bloke we've got today because this is a, an absolutely fascinating interview with a man who, whose career covers so many different genres of music, but this special moment he had with Elvis was something else. Well, Elvis was making movies, very unhappy with himself because it was a, a silly formula. He was recording crappy songs. <laughs> and in 1968, he was asked to do a TV special. And it was supposed to be a Christmas special and they wanted Elvis to introduce other guests and things like that. When Steve Binder got involved, he was a 25-year-old rebel um, and had his own ideas and he wanted to bring Elvis back to life on stage and show people what Elvis is really all about. And thanks to Steve, you know, Elvis was, you know, so motivated about this because it was something that he really enjoyed and he was passionate about. And they, they showed all, all the angle, different angles of Elvis, you know? Um, and we also hear about, um, how the very first unplugged happened. And, um, it, it was great that he corrected my story because I had a different idea how it happened. And the other thing too is, um, you know, he clarifies how Baz Luhrmann in the movie took license on so many things. Yes. Yeah, no, he's it's fascinating. Uh, he's he, was, he was the man who put it all together. He's a man to, uh, and I, he doesn't uh, sort of give himself enough credit in this, but when, and when you've heard the interview, you'll understand, he was up against not only a network who wanted Elvis to do something, but then there was Colonel Tom Parker, and he not fought them, but he worked a way that uh, in the end Elvis got uh, this fabulous showcase. We got to see Elvis as we probably should have seen him for a long time and Elvis got to enjoy the experience. It was a a bloody uh, Herculean effort on his behalf uh, and a stroke of genius. It was a very significant part of Elvis's history and I think it just re-motivated Elvis so much to get back on stage and that's 
way what he loved doing and um he just wanted to be in front of an audience again and one of our previous um guests that we've had on the podcast sandy miller yeah was, there. was in the audience yeah. and um, and sandy said that she had never seen elvis perform live that was the first time she'd seen him perform live so you know um these these stories connect they all connect and um you know it's great to hear from steve we couldn't get a word in or a question in could we, <laughs> like, no he's, he's, he's a good talker he's really and like you can imagine back when he was 25 years old how strong he would have been how passionate he would have been and you know and um and the rest is history yep and let's have a listen to uh to steve binder talking about it right now hey steve Hi guys. So, so tell us about this this recent documentary and how that sort of came up about happening. Well, it's it's interesting. I was approached by director of it, John Scheinfeld. You know, John is a, a writer more than a a, a, a director. Uh, and when you make a documentary, I think that's probably the most important thing is what are they going to say. And when he approached me with my book partner, uh, Spencer Proffer, I told him I wasn't interested. <laughs> I told him, you know, the past few years, especially, there have just been way too many Elvis projects. And, uh, you know, most of them, or all of them, I should say, uh, were third-party information. Uh, yeah. You know, None of the book writers really ever really knew Elvis or or were involved uh, in the 68 special. I I just noticed over the years, you know, they they kind of distorted the reality of what really happened. And I, being one of the only people that was actually there from day one to completion and even post-production, obviously, uh, really knew the, the real story. And I told them that, you know, I didn't want it watered down. I didn't want, uh, you know, Priscilla specifically to say her relationship was fantastic with Elvis and they had the perfect marriage and so forth and so on. So they said, well, let us pitch it to you and then you could decide. And I said, okay. They sat down and John uh, literally uh, had prepped it really well. He, uh, told me the basic premise and said, uh, if you like what we're doing and we think we're following your guidelines, uh, you know, we'd love you to participate and get involved with us and so forth. That's what convinced me. And I said, okay, you can count me in. And, uh, you know, all I ended up doing, to be honest with you, was, uh, you know, all of the, the narrative that John wanted both uh, on camera and voiceover. And, uh, but I have to, you know, give all the credit to them. And Spencer uh, really had a focus on making this documentary, uh, I guess, more about me than, than, than anything. And that in itself was, was really different. Seldom uh, does a director and producer get featured on a documentary. And I, I was extremely happy uh, with being able to tell my story. The team uh, that I put together uh, had no relationship to the Elvis Presley estate. 
there was nobody from Elvis's side that, that participated really uh, until the very end when I, as an afterthought, uh, when I realized we could do this improvisation acoustic section, uh, Elvis asked me, do you think we could bring in Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana, uh, his original uh, guitarist and drummer? And so I called them. They didn't want to do it. Uh, ironically, they said that uh, they were so pissed off at Colonel Parker for breaking up the trio uh, that they didn't want to participate in anything, Elvis. And I said, you know, this had nothing to do with Colonel Parker. And, uh, you know, I'd like you to reconsider. And, uh, you know, you guys were very tight. Uh, they uh, literally came in a, a, a day or two at the most before we actually did it. Uh, we never rehearsed it. It. I was amused that one of the uh, uh, critics uh, who reviewed it and gave it a, a five star said it almost looked like, uh, you know, they didn't rehearse it. <laughs> and, and the truth is we didn't. It was amazing that uh, usually when an act goes out on the road, you know, they prepare for weeks in a rehearsal studio other than saying hello to Elvis and hanging out with him for a day. Uh, everything we did on the improv was just, you know, forgetting we were doing television and just kind of reminiscing about the old days when they were together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they were such great musicians, all of them. You know, Elvis always put himself down as a guitarist, but in reality, uh, I've never met a musician who didn't admire Elvis's musicianship. It just happened. I mean, I didn't know whether he was, uh, you know, especially at the very beginning when he said he couldn't remember anything he did in the dressing room, uh, a bedroom that he had converted his dressing room into. He didn't remember any of the songs that, that uh, he was doing with just, you know, anyone who was hanging out near the dressing room without can, DJ and Scotty. Can I and, just jump in there, Steve, and ask uh, you, absolutely. if you don't mind, because that story, is it true that you were, because Elvis was living in Dean Martin's dressing room, right? Absolutely. And you was it true that you were walking by the corridor and the door was just a little bit open and you saw Elvis jamming with his buddies and you thought, wow, this is great. I really want to include this in the show. Not true. Not true? Uh, what happened was that uh, we'd finish, uh, when Elvis made the decision to live at NBC instead of drive, he had rented a home for Priscilla and, uh, you know, they had just had their daughter. Uh, Lisa Marie was only two months old at the time. He rented a home in Beverly Hills uh, for them. And then he, when we really started to communicate and do pre-production, he said, do you think there's a chance that I could avoid driving back and forth to Beverly Hills from Burbank, which would have been, even in those days, it would have taken uh, almost two hours uh, each way. And uh, he said, you know, I could use that time if I lived at the studio, do you think there's any way we could put a bed in the in the dressing room? That was easy enough. And it was uh, the greatest decision that was ever made on the special because what happened is that every night when Elvis would finish rehearsing or I'd actually tape uh, a piece of the segment of, of the special, 
uh, he'd go into his dressing room and he had the whole rest of the evening open with nothing to do. So he on his own with whoever happened to be hanging out there. And it was usually Alan Bly and Chris Beard, our writers, myself. Uh, it, uh, it was part of his entourage, I guess, Joe Esposito and, and a few of the guys who were there strictly as friends of Elvis and were there to, I guess, spy on him for the Colonel because the Colonel wanted to know 24 seven what Elvis was doing. And it was a case of where that's where uh, they started jamming and and playing some of the old songs and uh, telling stories about being on the road. And uh, Lance Legall, who is his stand-in in the movies, was there. Charlie Hodge, who he had met in the Army, was there. Those were the only people who really participated uh, when Elvis was just jamming in, in the dressing room. And that's when I kept going to the Colonel saying, I'm bringing a camera into the dressing room. And he said, basically over my dead body, you're not bringing any cameras in there. I spent a week begging him to go into the dressing room because I realized with all the money we're spending on, on the cast and, and dancers and singers and actors and what have you, the real heart of the special, the real platinum uh, was this jam session that I was watching every day. Wow. And that's when I got inspired. And the Colonel finally, I guess, got sick of me and out of amusement uh, said, okay, Bindle, I'll, I'll uh, let you recreate it on stage, uh, but I don't promise I'll let you use any of it in the show. I'd not realized that uh, the first day that I met Elvis at my office, Priscilla told me, few years later, I think even after his death, that the first time Elvis came home from his first meeting with me, he told her, uh, I don't care what the Colonel says or, or tells me to do. I'm going with his young guy, Binder. Uh, you know, I just got a gut feeling that we'd make a good combination. So that's how the improv really happened. I don't think the Colonel intended uh, or, or thought I was actually going to do it immediately. All the way through, he tried to sabotage it. He didn't want to, uh, uh, to even have it in the show. And uh, I remember <laughs> after I did it, I remember getting a call from uh, NBC. And uh, the gentleman who called me said, uh, do you think uh, what you've shot uh, is worth anything? <laughs> And I said, just show it to an Elvis fan. You'll find out real fast. And that was the story behind the, the acoustic. The whole wow. thing started with a no, though, didn't it? You, the original offer to you, you said no. Why, why weren't you interested? And, and didn't, didn't the lure of working with Elvis kind of draw you in? Or Well, I saw him before I was even in show business. Uh, I was going to college thinking I might become a doctor. I was in pre-med at a university in California. And uh, I, I uh, got a summer job uh, uh, only on the, on the uh, uh, motivation uh, that a friend of mine told me that I might meet a lot of pretty girls on campus. I just returned from being in the army for two years in Europe. And I was stationed in Austria and Germany all that time. And uh, when I came back and was going to re-register in college, 
the semester wasn't going to start for three or four months. And my high school buddy suggested I, I get this job at a studio uh, on the premise of all these beautiful women walking around and uh, never ever intended on being in the entertainment business. I was born and raised in LA and uh, Hollywood and, and uh, it just never entered my mind. You know, I was uh, working in my high school days at my dad's gas station in downtown Los Angeles, pumping gas and changing tires. And, and uh, I thought I might take over his business when I, when I uh, had to make the decision of, uh, you know, having a profession in life and so forth. Uh, but my parents were great and they gave my, oh, I have a older sister and uh, she was a school teacher her whole life, but my parents really believed in education and all the things they never had the opportunity to do. Never went to college. I think they barely graduated high school. You know, they were just fabulous in, in encouraging both my sister and I to do better things in, in life. And I wanted to repay them uh, for all the love and, and uh, guidance they had, they had given me. So it was really a case of when I saw Elvis on, on the Ed Sullivan show, uh, I, I certainly uh, enjoyed seeing him. Uh, you know, I loved he did the old songs like Hound Dog and Blue Suede Shoes and stuff. And then after that, when he became really popular and uh, super, superstar, television in America in those days, especially in variety, primetime, was dominated by comedians. Uh, the names you probably won't recognize, but Milton Berle was real popular in America. Steve Allen was real popular in America. These guys saw Elvis as sort of a comedic, you know, character to, to uh, not necessarily make fun of, but involve him in shtick that comedians love to do that took away who Elvis really was. You know, when I met Elvis, uh, he hated television. He told the colonel he never wanted to do it again. Uh, I remember Steve Allen had a real hound dog Allen, on, a, yeah. on, a, on a table in front of him. They dressed him in a tuxedo and he sang hound dog. I mean, and Milton probably threw a, a, a giant powder puff in his face. I mean, who knows? But the point being is that uh, I was not interested in Elvis at all at that time. I, I was a West Coast kid uh, from California who who loved, you know, the Beach Boys and, and uh, you know, Bones Howe, my partner at the time, uh, and I were, were uh, producing all the hit records for the Fifth Dimension and the Association. And, uh, you know, so when I got the call to see if I was interested in Elvis, uh, I had actually uh, signed a contract to do a motion picture with a very famous 50s iconic producer named Walter Wanger, who was very, very successful and popular in the 50s. And we were working on a screenplay. And so I said no when I got the call from NBC. I said I wasn't interested. And then my partner, Bones Howe, said, Steve, you're crazy. You know, I had worked on a few of Elvis's movie soundtracks. I think you guys would be great together. Movies take forever to, to make and distribute and 
And uh, maybe you can do both. Why don't you call Wanger and see if you can uh, get permission to do the Elvis thing while, uh, while you're waiting to get this movie made. And I thought about it for a little bit. As fate usually comes into situations like this, Walter Wanger died of a heart attack. So the whole project was called off. I was free. And I called NBC back and uh, the executive producer they assigned to the Elvis show, Bob Finkel, who turned out to be a giant, successful executive producer for me, who kept the colonel out of, <laughs> out of my hair. Uh, the two of them used to go off and play games every, every day of one-upsmanship. They played liar's poker. Uh, I remember when uh, uh, Bob told me that the, the colonel sent him this wonderful gift. He sent him a case of a very expensive champagne called uh, Dom Pernier, uh champagne. And Bob ironically had a dinner party at his home scheduled. So he pulled out a, a bottle of uh, Dom Perignon to serve his guests. And it turned out to be Gatorade. The Colonel had refilled <laughs> all the champagne <laughs> bottles with Gatorade. But in the meantime, he, he so distracted the colonel that the colonel never was around when we were actually making the show and uh, getting all of his information basically from uh, uh, from a few of the honorage uh, who hung out to entertain Elvis, uh, like Esposito and, and a few of those guys. How involved was Elvis uh, in the creation and every segment? Who chose the segments of the show, like the road medley and the gospel medley. Um, did you choose them or did Elvis have any input in that? The only thing that I can really take credit for creating from the beginning uh, is the improv acoustic section. What happened is I told my writers, Alan Bly and Chris Beard, to go to the most popular uh, retail music store in Hollywood at the time, which was called Wallach's Music City. And if you went into the music store in those days, uh, they had turntables everywhere where you could just go in and, and test whether you wanted to buy the, the record or not. I told them to go to Wallach's, uh, buy any and every thing you could find that had Elvis's name on it. And they came back with a whole uh, stack full of, of uh, Elvis uh, recordings on on 33 and a third, the albums and, and 45s. And they locked themselves into their office. They basically programmed the, the, uh, uh, the special. Uh, and it, if you read my Elvis uh, book on the special, uh, you'll see the actual thinking that we did as a team in terms of uh, talking about like a gospel segment or the whole guitar man sequence and so forth when multiple sets and costumes and what have you. Uh, Alan Bly and Chris went on to become giants in the producing variety field in America. Uh, they did uh, the Smothers Brothers. They did the Andy Williams series. They were wonderful, wonderful writers. Alan is still alive and uh, lives in Palm Springs, California. Uh, Chris, unfortunately, passed away about three or four years ago. Out of the original team uh, that I put together, uh, only, I think, four or five of us are alive today. 
you know, unfortunately everybody has passed on and, uh, you know, but we were a tight family. I, I put it all together, two specials earlier. I did a, a, a special with a very popular American artist uh, named Leslie Uggams. And Leslie was on a television series that was very successful uh, where you, as an audience watching TV, you followed the bouncing ball and you could sing along with the, <laughs> with the orchestra. Is that Mitch Miller? Singer. Yeah, and, and it was real popular. And she, at the time, uh, right before I did Elvis, uh, was starring on Broadway in a show uh, called Hallelujah Baby. And uh, so I sold uh, an hour special with her to NBC with this creative team that I had behind the scenes. And then the very next special we did uh, was Petula Clark, whose only American uh, hit record at the time was Downtown. Uh, and uh, and uh, we had our guest star was Harry Belafonte. And it created uh, a huge controversy uh, worldwide where the sponsor representative uh, objected to having a black man on the show. And when I actually taped this one anti-war song, and you have to realize in the 60s, America was going through a lot of turmoil uh, with the uh, Korean War and uh, protests on all the college campuses throughout America. So when they sang this duet, it was Petula, blonde hair, blue eyed, white female, who reached over and touched Harry Belafonte's forearm and all hell broke loose in the client's booth. And this uh, sponsor representative uh, turned out to be, uh, you know, a racist, basically. And he said, this is never going to get on the air. And I had shot about five other takes of the same song, but different staging, and they never touched in any of those five songs. So right after Petula touched Harry, uh, I went down to the editing room with Petula's husband. I ordered the editor to erase all the other masters. So the <laughs> only choice left by NBC to put in the air show was the touch. And that was wow. in Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine worldwide and created this huge controversy. And it was ironic that the next special was Elvis with the same team. And I, I had put together on that show uh, the Blossoms, three black girls who accompanied him, uh, especially on the gospel segment. Uh, it was kind of a United Nations on, on, on wheels where I had a black choreographer, a Puerto Rican choreographer. All our dancers were mixed races and religions and what have you. And never one negative word after the Elvis special aired about anything, uh, you know, in terms of the integration. Uh, I, I never cared about those things. And I was shocked that there was any controversy, to be honest with you. In, in uh, 1968, we were still fighting racism in America. Mm. And obviously, yeah. we're still, <laughs> we haven't advanced very much, unfortunately. Weren't, weren't you a little worried that Elvis was a bit of a redneck? Absolutely. Uh you know, one of the reasons that I was balking at even doing Elvis was that he was born in Tupelo, Mississippi, the deepest, deepest part of the south of the United States. 
and then he moved to uh, Tennessee, which is to this day still very super conservative uh, state. And uh, I was a West Coast kid. I was brought up liberal and I was brought to, you know, follow the golden rule, treat other people as they treat you. I didn't care what color they were, what religion they were, didn't mean anything to me. And uh, so I was concerned that I might be running into a redneck and uh, Elvis might have uh, racist feelings. Couldn't have been further from the truth, even though we were 2,000 miles geographically away from each other. Uh, we, were, we, we grew up with the same values, basically. And we had these amazing conversations. Uh, Elvis was very, uh, you know, he wasn't college educated, but he was street smart, real smart. And uh, he, uh, he had all these opinions and was following the, uh, what was going on in America with the John Kennedy assassination, the Martin Luther King assassination. And we happened to be together at my offices rehearsing the show before we went to NBC when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in, in Los Angeles. And we saw it live on television in my office. Mm -hmm. uh, TV happened to be on in another office and we heard a big commotion. So we got up and we went into that office and there was live on television, uh, the assassination uh, of Sirhan Sirhan, uh, murdering uh, uh, Bobby. And uh, we spent the entire rest of the evening. I think Alan uh, Bly and Chris Beard were there with me, Billy Goldenberg, our musical director, uh, Earl Brown, uh, who wrote If I Can Dream, my choral director. And we just sat around all night until the next morning when the sun came up, talking about what's going on in our country that, that uh, you know, all this hatred and, and uh, et cetera. I think that's when when Elvis and, and myself and my, my staff really bonded. I mean, that's when we realized we're dealing with a guy who's, who, uh, you know, it, at least from our standpoint and the time we spent with him, we, we never sensed any racism in him at all. In fact, he told me, uh, you know, because they were so poor when he was born, uh, he never saw any white people for the first, you know, six or seven years of his life. He, he uh, you know, he just saw the blacks. Uh, that's when he got heavily into their music and gospel music and loved it so much. I was going to ask you, Steve, so can you tell us how the song, If I Can Dream, to, you know, came about because was it originally supposed to be a Christmas song ending? Well, I was told from day one when I first met the Colonel, I had to meet the Colonel before he gave permission for me to meet Elvis. So I drove out to MGM Studios where his offices were with my partner, Bones. Funny thing happened on the way where uh, Bob Finkel called me uh, and he said, uh, when you go out to meet the Colonel, uh, uh, would you mind stopping at a French pastry shop and picking up some pastries for, for the colonel? So I thought to myself, great, it's early in the morning. We're going to have our meeting and we'll have coffee and pastries. <laughs> I arrived. Uh, there happened to be, ironically, uh, a few blocks from our offices, 
a really nice French restaurant and pastry shop. So uh, I, I bought about a half a dozen pastries for the Colonel. They were in a paper bag and uh, we uh, arrive at, at MGM and we go to the Colonel's office and I hand him the paper bag with all the pastries in it. I, I think he said, thank you, I'm not sure. But he went over to his briefcase, opened it up, put his put the bag into his briefcase, closed it, and that's the last I ever heard about my pastries. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there wasn't even coffee for us. I mean, there was nothing. So uh, we sat around talking, and the first thing the colonel did is he said, you know, the head of NBC at the time, Tom Sarnoff and I, uh, this is the show you're going to do. And he handed me a quarter inch uh, box with a with a tape in it. And it had on the front cover Elvis's face in a Christmas environment. And in the tape uh, was were about 20 Christmas songs that Elvis sang. Uh, no dialogue at all from Elvis. And uh, I think there was a public service announcement or something in the middle of it. And he said, this is our gift to disc jockeys all over America at Christmas time. And this is the show that, that we want you to do. So I knew instantly I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> I, I did not want to end up doing it. Uh, in those days in America, uh, every Christmas time, two middle of the road singers basically did wonderful Christmas shows, uh, Perry Como and Andy Williams with their families and so forth. And I knew that was the last thing uh, that Elvis Presley should be doing. And, and so I, I wasn't gonna do it. I went back to my office convinced that the meeting was a disaster. I wasn't gonna get to meet Elvis. I no sooner got back to my office, there was a call from Bob Finkel said, I don't know. I don't know what you did to charm Colonel Parker, but he loves you, and he's approved you doing the show. And uh, but from very first day, uh, my marching orders to uh, my writers and the staff was: we're not doing a Christmas show. We're we're going to do something. Uh, you know, uh, whether I get fired or not is irrelevant, but we're going to do something special for Elvis. And uh, I had the uh, the people with the chops to be able to deliver that. And they were fantastic. And uh, I wish I would have been able to do my entire career with that group of, of creative people. And unfortunately, they were so successful, they went on to much bigger careers <laughs> after uh, we, we parted ways. And, uh, you know, but I'm still, uh, I was friends with all of them for years afterwards. And I'm still friends with uh, those that are, are still uh, alive today. Uh, I talk to Alan Bly uh, literally every month. Uh, Jaime Rogers, uh, who was one of the dance choreographers uh, who did the guitar man section and the uh, karate section. Jaime was, was Puerto Rican and he co-starred with Sammy Davis Jr. when I first met him in a boxing uh, play on Broadway called The Golden Boy. He uh, was in West Side Story, the original movie and, and stage play on Broadway. Gene McAvoy, our art director, is still alive and well. And uh, trying to think of anybody else who is around. Uh, 
it was a very special time and I'm so happy I did do it. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, aside from, uh, 180 degree reversal of my feeling about what I thought Elvis was like and really getting to know him, uh, and having this intimate relationship with him, uh, for the time I was with him, my relationship with Elvis Presley lasted literally for less than a year from beginning to end. I never knew him before that first meeting when I met him and uh, the day we said goodbye and he tried to give me a a private phone number to call to communicate with him, which uh, was intercepted and I never did speak to him. Uh, I never spoke to him again. I never saw him again. Uh, I did go to Las Vegas to see him in 1969 when he debuted his Vegas show and I thought he was fantastic. And then I went to see him about a year later on my own. I sat in back of the room and I knew instantly it was over. He was bored. He was no longer uh, interested in performing to an audience. He was more performing for his orchestra behind him. And I don't think the audiences ever knew that. But uh, I just felt, uh, you know, Elvis had told me uh, personally, one-on-one, uh, at the very end, that he had all kinds of things he wanted to do. He wanted to go meet all his fans worldwide. He wanted to uh, try different things. He would never record a recording he didn't believe in anymore. He wouldn't do any more screenwriters who were writing these these movies for him who put their own songs in, and they weren't even songwriters, you know. And because the Colonel constantly insisted if you want Elvis to sing your song, you have to give him 100% of his, of your publishing. Uh, many writers like Lieber and Stoller, and Mike Stoller and I are still really good friends and talk all the time, but uh, they refused to give Elvis any of their songs after that because they felt, you know, it was unfair and they were being cheated. And uh, it, it was really a, a, the point where Elvis, after the 68 special, probably made some of the best recordings of his life. A funny thing is, uh, until the 68 special, which I never knew, uh, Elvis had never recorded with an orchestra before. He had only recorded with a rhythm section, uh, usually bass, drums, and guitar. They'd go home and then they, the producer would bring in the rest of the musicians and they would overdub uh, what he had done with the rhythm section. When I put together the, uh, which became known uh, and very famous, especially in America, the the Wrecking Crew, uh, to be the studio musicians uh, for the Elvis show. When Elvis walked into the studio for the first time and saw like 45 musicians sitting there (laughs) ready to play with, with a conductor, a ranger who had never heard any of the music that Billy Goldenberg had ever uh, put together for anything else, uh, he, he panicked and he called me and, and uh, we walked out on Sunset Boulevard and uh, he said, Steve, uh, I've never sung with an orchestra before. It, it could be a disaster. And if I don't like what I hear, and I've never heard a Billy Goldenberg arrangement, uh, you have to promise me that you're just going to keep the rhythm section and send everybody else home. And I promised him I would do that. And we walked back into the studio and uh, we're at a very famous recording studio in those days at Western uh, Recording Studio where 
Sinatra used to record, Tony Bennett recorded there, et cetera, all these famous artists. It was huge. And then uh, he walked up to Billy Goldenberg, uh, his podium, and Billy hit the downbeat for, if you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. And mm -hmm. uh, that was it. I, ne I never uh, heard anything negative from Elvis. He loved it. And he, he mm -hmm. couldn't get enough musicians when he went to Vegas and put his own uh, band together and so forth. Uh, so it was it was it was fun doing the show and, and the one thing that that i wanted to get across in in the documentary which i think john scheinfeld did a great job elvis had a great uh sense of humor and and uh, he was cracking everybody up all the time and uh and i think he really enjoyed doing the 68 special and as i said i think at times he forgot he was even doing television you know he said to me uh Early on, he said, television is not my turf. And I said, what's your turf? And he said, making records. And I said, great, you make a record and I'll put pictures to it. <laughs> mm. And he told me much later, those were key words that I said to him because he said it really relaxed me where I didn't feel I had all this pressure to do television, you know. And, and I think when he walked into my office and Bones had all these gold records from the Fifth Dimension, the association on our walls. He, he, he really relaxed because he wasn't just dealing with TV guys. He, he was dealing with people that, that he spoke the same language and he, he respected us a lot for our, our music uh, backgrounds, et cetera. And NBC wanted us to use the Bob Hope Orchestra <laughs> and the Bones and I refused to. Uh, I think we, we, uh, on the Elvis show, I think we used, uh, you know, for sure four track, but we may have even convinced NBC to, to uh, rent the eight track equipment uh, to do on the special. And they were balking. They just wanted us to have one track for sync and one track for the show and, and do it as they did 99% of their other shows uh, with two track. But I think television in general, uh, just thought it was a visual medium, didn't pay any attention to the, to the audio. And I was determined, that's why I partnered up with Bones. I was determined that uh, audio was certainly as important to television as video. And uh, I wanted to team up with a record producer uh, and uh, so we could bring the expertise from the music industry to television. And it worked. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You, you've described it as the experience of your life. Is there a moment? Is there one bit out of that special that, that stays with you that it is an endearing memory? Well, if I can dream, and you asked me the question earlier and I yep. ignored it. I'm sorry. But <laughs> if I can dream, uh, you know, I always knew I wasn't going to close the show with a Christmas song. And the colonel was always insisting that I either close the show with a, in the 1950s, a famous singer in America was Frankie Lane. And he had a hit song called I Believe, which to me had not, no reference to Christmas. But the Colonel, for whatever reason, wanted me to do that song at the end or do a real Christmas song. We had one incident uh, where uh, we were called to the 
colonel's office uh, at NBC, they were going to give him a, a dressing room just like Elvis, a beautiful, you know, huge dressing room. But he insisted that they clean out a little broom closet next to the stage, and that would be his office. And they put kind of a toy desk in there with a little tiny chair, and and uh, and we were ordered into the colonel's office, uh, Elvis and myself. And the colonel had, uh, who is always a prankster, always you know playing these games. He got William Morris to give him. Uh, William Morris is a huge agency for talent in America, and he gave him, uh, he insisted that William Morris give him two agent trainees. Uh, he dressed them in uh, palace guard, English palace guard uniforms with the tall hats and, and so forth. And he had them uh, basically standing guard in front of this little <laughs> broom closet. <laughs> And it was ludicrous. And I remember Elvis and I walked in there and, and the colonel said, boys, uh, it's been called to my attention uh, that there's no Christmas song in the show you're doing. And Elvis wants a Christmas song in the show, don't you, Elvis? And Elvis kind of muttered, uh, yes, sir. Elvis never wanted to confront the colonel uh, for whatever reasons. So I said to the colonel, if Elvis ever told me he wanted a Christmas song in the show, I'd put a Christmas song in the show. I have no problem with that. And we walked out of his office, and uh, the minute we got past his palace guards, uh, he jammed me in the ribs and said, using the F word, <laughs> you know, he said, fuck him, <laughs> forget it. So I never put a Christmas song in the show. Fortunately, it saved me at the very end when the colonel was refusing to let NBC even air the special. Elvis, on his own, while he was doing the improv section, sang uh, Blue Christmas, Christmas and yeah. a few other Christmas songs, and that saved it. Yeah. And um, how accurate do you think the latest movie biopic is? Because uh, obviously you're featured in it quite a bit. I think Baz did a good job on the 68 special. I think he, uh, that segment in itself kind of stood out to me as, as one of the highlights of the movie. And, uh, you know, I, I think Austin did a fabulous job doing Elvis. Uh, and I, I think uh, Baz actually used real Elvis at times. It was brilliant job of mixing uh, you know, footage, yeah. in the body of a, of a song that Austin was singing, there would be little tiny, you know, phrases or bars that, that Elvis sang that he would use for real. And you couldn't tell the difference between Austin and Elvis in, in those sections. So um, is, is that real, the, you know, the If I Can Dream scene where they had Christmas all set up on one side and then they... No. No, we, had no. No, we had no reference to Christmas whatsoever. Baz took literary license on that. He actually yeah. took literary license on me being up at the Hollywood sign. I never went there. He never, in Las Vegas, uh, in front of an audience, fired the colonel. Uh, I think that also is the No, yeah. yeah. But the yeah. Andrew musicals are meant to be entertaining, and I think Baz hit a home run and hit it out of the park in terms of the movie obviously with the success of it and, and people uh, writing me that they've seen the movie 
multiple yeah. times, you know, I was a consultant for Baz on the movie, but the only person that I spoke to was his wife, who does all of his movies. Oh, yeah. She does that yeah. costumes. She called me a few times to ask me questions about the sets and the costumes and so forth. But yeah. as far as the screenplay itself, that was strictly Baz and his partner in Australia. Uh, sure, Catherine, yeah. How do you feel yeah. being the creator of the very first Unplugged ever in the world? You know, it's funny. I was on a panel years ago uh, with the head of MTV, the head of VH1, and they all <laughs> acknowledged me, uh, you know, for uh, opening the door for them to do these successful series they've done. Uh, mm -hmm. But when I pitched them the series saying, it's a, this is a great idea to do as a regular series, they all turned me down. So uh, that's show business. <laughs> and But I wanted to finish, if I could, the If I Can Dream story. I didn't have a song for the end of the show, but I knew I didn't want to do a Christmas song. I didn't want to do if I can, uh, uh, I believe a Frankie Lane song. And so I told Billy Goldenberg, my musical director, and Earl Brown, my vocal director, go home and write the greatest song of your life. You now know Elvis Presley intimately. You've spent time with him alone. And, and uh, I, I want a song uh, as if Elvis were giving a speech and and told you how he felt and uh so they went home and i got a call a few days later from earl and he said i think we've got it and he came uh we met early in the morning elvis i think was over in the commissary and we we're alone and we went into his dressing room and we had two pianos in there uh, a baby grand and an upright earl uh sang the song and Billy plays piano brilliantly. He and Michelle Legrand used to duet together on, on these grand pianos. It was exciting to hear and see. They, they played it for me, and at about four bars in, I knew I had the song. That was it. So when Elvis came over, I told him that we have a closing song for him. And Earl sang it. Billy played the piano. Elvis listened to it, and Elvis said, play it again. And this was typical of Elvis. And then he heard it again, and he said, play it again. They must have played it four or five times for him. By that time, the colonel had wandered into the dressing room, and the colonel came in with Freddie Beanstalk, who was the head of Elvis's uh, publishing company, I guess. I heard the colonel through the thin door that separated us I heard him saying, over my dead body, will Elvis ever sing that song? Elvis turned to me and he said, I'll do it. <laughs> I think in total defiance of, of Parker. Wow. And uh, Billy Goldenberg, who I had worked with on Hullabaloo and, and used him on Petula Clark and used him on uh, uh, Leslie Uggams, uh, to me was brilliant to begin with. It, it was really a case of where he walked up to the piano, took an eraser from a pencil, erased his name on the lead sheet, which said music by Billy Goldenberg, uh, lyrics by Earl Brown. And he turned to me and he said, 
Earl did this entire song by himself. I had nothing to do with it. He was just being, you know, uh, over generous by putting my name on it. And, and I don't deserve it. I didn't do, I didn't write this song or any part of it. Earl did the whole thing. That was such an incredible gesture. It cost Billy Goldenberg a fortune in, <laughs> in uh, publishing, uh, you know, uh, or in writer's uh, fee. I think it's two cents for writing and two cents for publishing on every record, on every song. And, but, he, but the song became so famous and, and sold so many records and still continues to do so. Uh, but the integrity of my group was second to none. I mean, I love those guys and, and gals that worked on it. No, it's an amazing story. I'm, I'm delighted that we 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 got that from you. Then, I want to finish by asking you this question. Uh, famously, when you when you met Elvis and he asked you where you thought his career was, you told him you thought it was in the toilet. Do you think you <laughs> do you think you got his career out of the toilet by the time you finished the special? Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, he asked me. He said, "What if the special bombs?" And I said, "You'll still be famous because you did all these movies." You have a lot of movie fans, you know, whether you consider them B-movies or, or whatever you label them. Uh, and you did your early hits with Blue Suede Shoes and, and uh, Hound Dog and, and all these early, early Elvis songs. But I think, you know, your career is basically over. We are already, uh, you know, the English invasion in America has already happened with uh, the Rolling Stones. I had done a movie called The Tammy Show with uh, uh, James Brown and the Flames and the Stones and so forth. Uh, the Beatles are over now and they're, so you may not have any doors open left for you. And he was also saying, I'm not even sure kids today would even uh, like me because it's been around 12 years uh, since I performed for any of them or released any hit records for them and so forth. But I said, Elvis, if the show is a success, every door is open again. You can do anything you want to, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I was pleased that uh, uh, that for a little window of time, uh, he was able to make this incredible comeback. It's sad. And I, I knew inside all the things he wanted to do. But, you know, the colonel had all the tools and and knew where all the buttons were to get him to do what he wanted him to do and and uh, for whatever reasons uh elvis went with the colonel and stayed with him uh even in vegas when i knew he was bored out of his head just being a vegas singer he just wouldn't stand up to the colonel and say no i want to i want to do this i want to go out of the country i want to go all over the world i want to meet my fans mm. um, i want to Experiment and try new things. Elvis would have been a hell of an actor in a great movie. And I even at, at a time suggested to him that instead of the Colonel asking for a million dollars for you to do a B movie, uh, why don't you pay a great director, you know, and pay him a million dollars just to put you in their movie. And, and uh, you know, I think he was offered uh, to co-star with uh, Streisand uh, in A Star is Born. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. We really appreciate it. It's been fabulous to catch up with you. Great. Well, I appreciate it. 
You know that I, I spent a lot of time in Australia, and I, I actually I was with uh, uh, Robbie G, Robbie Porter, as partners. Yeah. I owned uh, Wizard Records and Sparmac. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, and we brought uh, Daddy Cool was our first act that we brought to America. Then wow. uh, Springfield was the next one. But uh, I love Australia, and I've been there. I've been back there, and unfortunately, Robbie had a horrible automobile accident a few years back and passed away. Mm. But uh, it was a great relationship, and and uh, I love your country. So uh, anyway, thanks a lot for the interview. Thanks, Steve. Hope to catch up with you when I'm in uh, LA next. And uh, if if you're ever out in Australia, let us know, and uh, we'll look after you. Okay, I appreciate it. Fascinating stuff, unbelievable story, and uh, it makes you want to go immediately go now and have a look at the special. Yeah, yeah I actually I haven't met Steve, and I, that's something on my bucket list. And uh, next time I'm, I'm in LA, I'm going to make an effort to try and hook up with him. Yeah. I, I think he's fascinating. Yeah, he is a fascinating bloke. Great stories. Now, where can we see you uh, live and how do we find out exactly where you are appearing live so we know if you're coming to a, a venue near us soon? Oh, well, I kind of do some mini shows as well and I do Elvis request nights. So if you're an Elvis fan and there's a certain song that, oh, nobody sings that one, you know, it's like so I actually take requests and sing them on the spot or hopefully I get pre-orders so I can rehearse it a little bit. <laughs> but I I have sang a lot of songs, you know, out of the catalogue. So there's always something that, um, that that's, you know, that uh, people relate to and uh, people request. So there... I do one at Sandown Park Hotel every month or two, right. and there's another club on the west side in Albion off Ballarat Road there, and that's another venue that I do. So um, those sort of flyers are floating around on uh, Mark Andrew page, and, um, you know, you can get details there how to get tickets. That's a that's a uh, special skill. Like, are you, are you telling me I can pull any song out of the Elvis catalogue, and you you reckon you can? Yeah, all right, pull uh, one out there. Pull oh, one out there. Let's see if um, okay. Um, I'm trying to think of one that's a little more. See, my, yeah. I, every time I think of Elvis, you know what I think of every time? Edge of reality. Every single time. That's easy. Yeah, I do that all the time. Yeah, that's one of yeah. my favourite songs, and in the ghettos, I guess the, the, two, ghetto, the yeah. two, two Elvis songs I love the most. So, and Elvis fans, you know, pull out some really obscure ones like, um, you know, uh, oh, I'm so lonesome, I can cry. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. You know, all these ones that, uh, or Unchained Melody or, uh, you know, Hurt, which is a big ballad. And um, so these are the songs that I sing those nights and, um, you know, and uh, you, you kind of personalise it to the person that's requested it. And um, I just want to mention too in this podcast, one of my fans passed away, you know, last week and I just want to pay tribute to her. Her name was Jill and her favourite song was Teddy Bear and she always came to these request nights and I just want to give my condolences to, um, you know, her family, her husband. I knew her daughter well. She came with her, Michaela. So, um, you know, it's all these fans that um, that support you and the, the big Elvis fans and, uh, you know, it's very sad when uh, things like this uh, happen. So, um, you know, love to the family. Fair enough. Good on you, Mark. We'll, uh, we'll talk again very soon. 
Thanks, Kevin. See you, mate. Oh, baby, let me be your love teddy bear. Put a chain around my neck and lead me anywhere. Let me be your teddy bear. I don't want to be a tiger, cause tigers play too rough. I don't want to be a lion, cause lions ain't the kind you love enough. But as I want to be, you'll tell me back. Put a chain around my neck and lead me anywhere. Oh, let me be, oh, let it be. Baby, let me be around you every night. Run your fingers through my hair and cuddle me real tight. Oh, let me be, oh, let him be your teddy bear.